I realized there had to be another way out of that. A new holiday was born. A festivus for the rest of us. This new holiday of yours is scratching me right where I itch. Let's do it then. All right. Festivus is back. Ladies and gentlemen, Bidol of America! And now, ladies and gentlemen, Banal of America Audio, with your host, Tim Banal. What is going on, my friends? This is Tim Banal of BanalofAmerica.com. I want to wish all the awesome BOA Audio listeners out there a very Merry Christmas, Happy Hanukkah, Kwanzaa, and Solstice. This is the BOA Audio Holiday Special right smack dab in the middle of the holiday season. And we're going to be celebrating it as we do every year in the tradition like no other with the father of modern day ufology, Stanton Friedman. I still get emails all the time from folks saying that they're looking forward to the holiday special. I get them in the summertime. It's amazing. People love Stanton Friedman. That's why he is the star of the holiday special This year, we're going to be discussing a whole bunch of different stuff. Much like last year, first half devoted to my questions, second half devoted to listener questions. More on that in a little bit. First, we're going to get an update on what he's been doing in the last year. And there's going to be some teasers in there for his next book, Science is Wrong. A lot of stuff that isn't involved in ufology, surprisingly. He talks about medicine as well as weighs in on climate gate, so I think you'll like that. Then we're going to get his thoughts on the passing of ufological legend Dick Hall, and we're going to hear Stanton's recollections of working with Dick Hall over the years. A fascinating look at the behind-the-scenes world of UFO studies. From there, we're going to kind of smash the fourth wall a little bit and talk about what Stanton sees as his own legacy in the world of ufology. In a way, it's kind of revealing because we're going to get a real look at how Stan sees himself. And towards the end of our segment here on the interview, we're going to talk about the exopolitics movement and the disclosure meme that's been growing over the past year or so. That's just half the holiday special because much like last year, we opened it up to the BOA Audio listeners. The folks who listen all the way to the end of the show know what the score is here. This is just a lesson to you once again. you got to listen all the way through the program because cool opportunities like this pop up. We opened up the floor to BOA Audio listeners through the BOA forum, theusofe.com, as well as Twitter and Facebook. Anybody who wanted to send in a question for Stanton Friedman was welcome to do so, and much like last year, we presented them to him here on the holiday special. And really, this year, the questions were all over the board and fascinating. I was really surprised by what people asked Stanton and uh, was really fascinated by his responses. Let me roll through the list of some of the topics he talks about here in the listener questions portion of the show. 9-11 and the 9-11 conspiracy, UFOs as self-replicating probes, the JFK assassination, the Nazi bell experiments, the oddest thing he's encountered on an investigation. That segues into a really cool UFO story that he has. 
UFO cases he sees as particularly strong, the nuclear rocket program he used to work on, and his thoughts on the interdimensional theories on UFOs, as well as an assortment of other questions. So really, I think you're going to hear Stanton's opinion on a whole plethora of different topics that I never would have thought to ask him. So kudos to the BOA Audio listeners who submitted questions. They get credit during the episode, so stay tuned for that if you uh, submitted your question. Altogether, it is BOA Audio celebrating the holidays as only we can with the fifth annual BOA Audio holiday special featuring Stanton Friedman. This one stands up with the rest of the series. Looking back on it now, it's kind of cool and, and interesting to see that putting it all together, we have amassed five to six hours worth of material here with Stanton Friedman over the course of the five years of the holiday special, and that library really is amazing to me and something I'm going to look back on forever as one of the great achievements of this program. Let's do the bio for some odd reason, because I don't know why anyone will be listening and not know the bio of Stanton Friedman, but we're going to do it anyway. Stanton Friedman received his BS and MS degree in physics from the University of Chicago in 1955 and 1956. He was employed for 14 years as a nuclear physicist for such companies as GE, GM, Westinghouse, TRW Systems, Aerojet General Nucleonics, and McDonnell Douglas on such advanced classified, eventually canceled projects as nuclear aircraft, fission and fusion rockets, and nuclear power plants for space. He's provided written testimony to congressional hearings, appeared twice at the UN, and been a pioneer in many aspects of ufology, including Roswell, Majestic 12, the Betty Hill and Marjorie Fish star map work, analysis of the Delphos, Kansas physical trace case, crashed saucers, flying saucer technology, and challenges to the SETI, silly effort to investigate cultists. He's the author of the books Top Secret Magic and Crash at Corona, the definitive study of the Roswell incident, the co-author of Captured about the Betty and Barney Hill abduction case, and last year penned his magnum opus, Flying Saucers and Science. His website is www.stantonfriedman.com. Pretty simple, all one word, stantonfriedman.com. Check it out for a wealth of information from the father of modern-day ufology. And now, without any further ado, let's get jolly. This interview was recorded on December 12, 2009. Stanton Friedman on the 5th Annual BOA Audio Holiday Special. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the 5th Annual BOA Audio Holiday Special. Our guest obviously needs no introduction. Every year, the final episode before the Christmas holiday is dedicated to this man. I'm sure way back when, when he had that extra book that he could have ordered, and he ended up ordering the UFO book, he never expected that Oh, many, many years down the line, there'd be a holiday special built around his career as a ufologist, but it happens every year here on BOA Audio. It's one of my favorite episodes to produce. Uh, I'm kind of running out of hyperbole for this guy because it's, it's like our sixth interview here we've ever done. I will share a story that uh, when I first started, he was the first interview that I ever did, and if Stan Friedman had sort of blown me off that day in Washington, D.C., I probably wouldn't even be doing this. I would have said, ah, forget this. It's not worth it. I knew I had to come back from D.C. with a quality interview, and I knew if I had a Stan Friedman interview that people would be happy with what I produced as my first uh, series of interviews. So, you know, he really gave me a chance, and, and that 
set the ball rolling down the hill, if you will, or the snowball, and it's quite gotten bigger and bigger every year. And, and this year, it's the fifth year, and, and I'm just so happy to have him back on the program. Had so much fun last year talking to him. Looking forward to this year so much. As you know, folks, he is a legend. I said it last year. When they build the UFO Hall of Fame, he's going to need his own wing. The moniker Father of Modern Day Ufology isn't hyperbole, folks. This guy really uh, has carried the UFO field on his back for many, many years. And really, as we'll get to, I think, later in this conversation, I think uh, saved ufology in a lot of ways toward the late 70s. But we'll talk about that in a few moments. He is, of course, the legendary Stanton Friedman, author of Crash at Corona, Top Secret Magic, Captured. He co-authored that with Kathy Martin. And Flying Saucers and Science, his magnum opus, which we talked about last year. A must-read, folks. Pick that one up if you don't have that one already. And the website, StantonFriedman.com. Stan, it is my esteemed pleasure to have you back here for the fifth annual holiday special. Thank you for helping us make this such a huge tradition. Well, gee, this show sounds so exciting. I ought to listen. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for the intro. Uh, My pleasure. I'm glad I'm still alive and uh, able to do the show. After all, I'm an old man. (laughs) Oh, man, don't say that. Don't say that. Well, I hope we can keep doing the holiday special for years and years to come. Uh, I I sometimes think that you're going to outlast me in this UFO field if it keeps getting crazier and crazier. So. We'll, we'll see what happens. But, yeah, it's great to have you back. Um, before we sort of, like, dive into the questions and stuff, uh, you know, what have you been up to in the last year? It's been about a year since we talked, and um, I haven't heard well, too much. You know, I, I recently read an article that you were down there in Tennessee doing a conference or, or a speaking engagement. So yeah, I, I, did a, um, I did a Tennessee MUFON statewide meeting kind of thing. There were several speakers, and uh, that was last weekend and kind of fun. Uh did a couple of uh, interviews as well when I was there, and uh, even sold a few books. Uh, we like that, too. I mean, you can't carry them around. I hope that you sell enough so you won't have to ship them back. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, well, I was at Roswell last year. I was at uh, the MUFON conference in Denver, speaking in both places. Uh, I spoke at a Galena, Illinois MUFON conference I've been working on another book, uh, number five. I'm the Grandma Moses of the UFO book trade. (laughs) (laughs) This one's uh, Kathleen Martin and me again together Mm -hmm. uh, with an interesting title, Science Was Wrong. Uh, The publisher changed it. It was originally, it's impossible, isn't it? But they wanted science is wrong, uh, was wrong. And I suspect, although I'm not sure of this, that because they are carrying Eric Von Daniken's new books, History is Wrong, uh, same publisher, uh, Career Press, uh, New Page Books, Mm -hmm. that maybe they wanted the title to sort of, you know, start a trend with his book and my book and all that sort of thing. But anyway, that's been a challenge because uh, we're doing, uh, it's a lot of non-UFO stuff, but there's some UFO stuff too. uh, the whole focus, and there's there's a strong message here, and that is that oftentimes over the years, uh, very well-educated professional people, scientists usually, have said very stupid things that have stood in the way of progress. And by stood in the way, I mean caused deaths, uh, had bad things happen to people because they were that there was a guy who didn't want people to get vaccinated. 
uh, again, smallpox, which is a very disfiguring disease and so forth. Yeah. That's God's way of keeping the population down, you know, <laughs> and thousands died. There was the way Dr. Semmelweis was treated uh, in Austria, in Vienna, no less, a high-class place back in the 1840s or so. And he figured out that women were dying at the laying-in hospital of purple fever, childbirth fever, a simpler name, because the residents and interns weren't washing their hands. You know, the sign of a good doctor was how much blood you can get on your apron kind of thing. Yeah. And they'd go from doing autopsies down to examining pregnant women, and 20% of the women died of this fever. Uh, when the midwives were doing the work, 2% died. Well, some of us figured this out. It's a fascinating story, and I won't go into details. But anyway, he was hounded out of the hospital because that's not the way we do things. And this is before the germ theory and, and so forth. But literally thousands of women and their offspring died because the head of the hospital hounded him out and re took back, you know, the techniques he had worked out, which dropped in that part of the hospital from 20% to 2%, but didn't matter. So there were things like that flight, the history of flight is full of people saying really dumb things. Uh, you know, airplanes will never fly. Uh, the Secretary of the Navy is saying, I'd stand on the deck of that ship that Billy Mitchell thinks he's going to sink. Ha, ha. It's a good thing he didn't. The battleship went down in five minutes. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, uh, it, there's a whole bunch of these space. The English Astronomer Royal, uh, Van Der Woolley, um, said space travel is utter bilge. This is a year before Sputnik went up. Nobody would spend the money. And why not buy some useful astronomical tools instead of doing this silly stuff? And, you know, there is no science that has benefited more than astronomy uh, from those wonderful satellites we have up there, not just Hubble, but Chandra and Fermi and yeah. Spitzer. And, you know, the, the data improvement is a factor of 100 or more, you know, and accuracy and details and stuff. So, you know, but here's the Astronomer Royal, who even was asked to sit on a committee to look into it for England. I mean, boy, that wasn't the right guy for the job. Yeah, that's for sure. Well, it raises an interesting point, because, you know, science is sort of like, they're like the newspaper industry. When they make a mistake, they, they sort of just shuffle it off to, you know, the back pages with the corrections and stuff. Well, just, yeah. just the new theory, and people don't realize that oftentimes science is wrong. Well, look at our picture of the solar system. Everybody knows Mars never had water absolutely dry, that Venus is a tropical paradise, a jungle, a humid, and so forth, and those thick clouds. There's a whole long list of these false claims. Uh, no life anywhere, you know. And you realize one of the arguments against anybody coming here is not only that you can't get here from there out there, but there aren't any planets out there. These are the only planets, right? No, sorry. <laughs> We've already discovered over 400. Uh, so it, it, it's been fascinating. And the latest one is right up to snuff. And I just uh, talked to the publisher. I'm going to get the manuscript in <laughs> this week. Uh, that one chapter is still, things are still up in the air about climate. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, you may have heard about Climate Gate. Oh, yeah, I've heard all about it. You know, and I talk about the Cosmic Watergate. Well, these climate guys, holy cow, I've been following it fairly closely. And, you know, I don't know what's going to come out of Copenhagen, probably not much. But do you realize that this small group of people, the IPC and Al Gore uh, and, and company, would have the world spend literally hundreds of billions of dollars to defend us against evil CO2. (laughs) God, we've got to get rid of it. I mean, you know, as if we we tend to forget plants need CO2 to grow. Yeah. And so the higher the CO2 level, the more the plants will grow. And for 11 years, there's been no global warming. And these guys have been as bad as the anti-UFO academics, the ancient academics that I talk about. Oh, yeah, yeah. And so that chapter, I, I have their approval. If something happens before we actually go to press and we have time, we might have to add a few more words there. <laughs> <laughs> that's all, yeah, it sounds like it at the rate this thing's it, unfolding. You know, the stuff in the 1800s, we're not going to change that. But <laughs> 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 well, you know, it, it's, it's not a trivial question. How to decide how a country spends its money, what its priorities are, and things like that. This can have an enormous impact on everybody. It's not an in sort of thing. Well, these guys, this professor will get a few thousand less than that one. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about society. And uh, as a nuclear guy, you know, I'm concerned about uh, we're going to go with wind and solar. And frankly, the only way you're going to really deal with, uh, you know, energy is building a lot of nuclear plants, and some people are. And, you know, it's one of those contradictions, and this you see this all the time in the UFO field as well. We're against producing CO2, and we don't want any nuclear plants, which is the only kind of, you know, it's the best way to get around the CO2 problem, <laughs> not burn fossil fuels, you know. But anyway, I, I guess I don't like windmills enough to... <laughs> and I keep reminding people that, you know what? The wind doesn't blow all the time, and the sun doesn't shine all the time. So when you hear people talk about what the capacity of the power plant is that you're going to build, uh, don't forget you got to throw in a utilization factor. <laughs> yeah. Now, I wanted to get your thoughts on um, on the passing of Dick Hall, because I know, you know, you've been in the field forever, and, and, and I'm sure worked with him. He was older than I was. <laughs> a little bit, but... Well, Dick was an interesting guy. He was certainly a pioneer in the field. He ran NICAP there for a while. He worked closely with Major Kehoe. He had strong views about a lot of things. He did his, I always, almost all my lectures, I talk about his, the UFO evidence Mm -hmm. from 1964, and then he updated it uh, maybe 10 years ago. Uh, a great collection of reports for anybody who says, oh, there's no good stuff out there, all there is is garbage, and so we say, well, wait a minute, have you read this? Of course not. You know, uh, and I, I keep reiterating this, but I, at the beginning of most of my lectures, I uh, talk about five large-scale scientific studies, and Dick's studies, of course, one of them. And I show a slide, tell them what's in it, then I ask how many people have read it. And if I'm lucky, it's one or two percent. So it, it's a good example of protecting myself against complaints because if a guy's going to take me on, I have been known to say on a couple of occasions, 
you say there's another interpretation here. Now, I told you my sources of data. You haven't read any of those sources. Yeah. <laughs> Whose opinion's worth more, darn it? <laughs> <laughs> exactly, yeah. That tends to shut them up. And incidentally, uh, Dr. Seth Shostak of the SETI Institute, uh, when I spoke on the Queen Elizabeth II, we both give, gave three lectures in its last westward passage, uh, what, five years ago, more than that maybe now. And I asked that question, and he was there. We were polite to each other. This wasn't unpleasant kind of stuff. And he didn't raise his hand for any of the five. So it's one of my rules. I keep telling people, you want to debunk something, here are the rules. What the public doesn't know, I'm not going to tell them. And don't bother me with the facts my mind's made up. And if you can't attack the data, attack the people. Now, Seth didn't do that. And the fourth one is do your research by proclamation because investigation is too much trouble. And to get back to Dick Hall, he did his research by investigation. He collected, reviewed, evaluated data. He had a, a rough side to him, too. He had a bad problem with – there was a company called Enron. Mm -hmm. Dick's retirement was tied to Enron stock. Oh, no. Didn't do well. So his last few years were – I made him kind of angry and upset, and we had some disagreements. He uh, didn't like MJ-12 particularly, and uh, we, we had a strange disagreement. Uh, he didn't want MUFON to invite uh, Steve Greer to speak at a conference in Southern California at an annual conference. And none of us thought Steve... Uh, was making an enormous contribution to ufology. On the other hand, he was well-known. He would attract people. And, you know, give him his day in court. Clobber him when he's there. But uh, And Dick didn't think we ought to have him. And so we, we did disagree about that. Uh, but, you know, he's one of the old guard, and uh, there aren't too many of them left. You may have noticed that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's unfortunate. But uh, it's good that, you know, we're remembering these folks and stuff like that. Now, what do you think Dick's legacy will be in, in the world of ufology, that, that outstanding book and collection of cases? Well, I think that will be it primarily, uh, and the willingness to speak out about things, uh, although we ran afoul of each other on another score completely, and that was on Frank Faschino's book, Shoot Them Down, mm -hmm. which was preceded by the Braxton County Monster, and that's a whole long, sad story of publisher about that one. But anyway, Dick was saying, and, and I should add, Frank's an artist, and he sees things through an artist's eye. Uh, Dick was not uh, an artist. And uh, anyway, Dick said that there weren't any dogfights between UFOs and uh, military aircraft. And so we went and did our checking and gathered an awful lot of data uh, we also found positive proof that the government had issued orders in 1952 to shoot them down if they don't land when instructed to do so. Mm -hmm. Now, you can imagine a cartoon with that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, how do you tell the alien to go down? You want him to get down there. <laughs> but uh, the funny thing is, Frank and I, and with digging from other people who have large collections of clippings and so forth, uh, the book is focused on 52 because of the Flatwoods Monster, which was September 12, 1952. And we found loads of evidence that there were 
I'll call it dogfights, in close encounters between airplanes and UFOs. And we found a number of them in Dick's book, <laughs> uh, which, for which we were most grateful. And so uh, there's a case, 52, you know, was the biggest year in uh, Project Blue Book history in terms of the number of sightings. And so the in orders to shoot them down, we followed that up, incidentally. Uh, Frank checked the New York Times from 51 to 56. And would you believe 200 fatal military plane crashes? Oh, wow. Not just accidents, but 200, more than 200 pilots, because some of them had two crew members. Mm -hmm. And uh, five of the pilots had over 100 missions in Korea. Where the MiGs were trying to shoot them down, you know? Yeah. Now, you presume those are pretty good pilots or they wouldn't survive. Absolutely. And yet they come back where there are no MiGs, as far as I know, <laughs> and five of them died. And I say died because the New York Times uses the words disintegrated and disappeared a few times. And so if anybody's listening and knows a story, not from a pilot who came back, but one who somebody else knows didn't come back yeah. from chasing uh, UFOs. I'd like to hear about it. Uh, I've heard seven instances like that. And you got to figure if I've heard seven quietly, nobody was looking for any noise <laughs> yeah. uh, about this. Uh, if I've heard seven, there had to have been a lot more. So that's an untold story in this whole business. And, uh, I'd sure like to see people coming forth. You know, somebody's uncle told them about this plane that went up and didn't come back or whatever. But uh, so uh, Dick, it's a good thing he had all that data to help us out and figuring out what was going on. Yeah, absolutely. Now, when he saw the data and everything and what you guys found, did he change his mind or was he still sort of? Well, I don't uh, know. He, he stopped attacking. <laughs> 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 but, you know, the original book was done in 64, and the other one many years later, and I can't blame him if he didn't remember everything that was in the original book. 4,500 cases are noted in one way or another. Oh, wow. So, you know, uh, he doesn't have a chapter, dogfights between airplanes yeah. and UFOs. So uh, I can't, I'm just, I bring that out because it was the stimulus of his commenting negatively that forced us to do our homework. Exactly. It's and like real peer review. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, he doesn't think they're on. I, Barry Greenwood has a huge collection of clippings, and he dug some out. Uh, Lauren Gross on the West Coast uh, used to put out these, uh, what, semi-annual reports with all kinds of stuff in them, clippings and so forth. And, you know, there's an enormous amount of information out there, but most of it isn't indexed. You know, and uh, it isn't scanned, so you can do a quick look. Uh, here are all the UFO newspaper clippings. Uh, can you imagine that, that professor, uh, he was dean in Iowa, Drake University, who did his Ph.D. theses uh, on press coverage of UFOs and actually read 10,000 clippings. Wow. Uh, he had some strong things to say. This is way back a number of years ago. But he had some strong things to say about the inadequacy of press coverage. But he had big notebooks full of clippings, 10,000. Holy crap. Well, you know, there's a lot of stuff out there. I didn't say anyway, all of it was good, you understand. <laughs> <laughs> that's, the, that's the ufology for you. Now, 
this year, there has been kind of a lot of talk about legacy with the passing of Dick Hall and, and John Keel. Now, have you ever given much thought to your legacy? Well, that's an interesting question. Yes, I have, because I've been talking to yeah, some people about maybe doing a memoir, you know, Bud Hopkins did one. Yes, I've been calling for your memoir for years, so let me know well, what happens. Well, I'm thinking about it, and so that's forcing me to think about, okay, what do I want, I want to emphasize? But I suppose my legacy will be a willingness to stand up to the big shots, you know, whether it's Larry King or Art Bell and so forth, and also to take on people like uh, Seth Shostak or Michael Shermer, uh, you know, head of the Skeptics mm -hmm. Society. Oh, yeah. And uh, uh, we had a, well, I won't say memorable, but uh, irksome <laughs> debate on uh, with George Norrie, and I got 80% of the vote. And, you know, I say this not to brag, but because I found that average Joe Blow he may not stand up in public much, but he appreciates people like me going on the shows. When I was on Art Bell several years ago, I offered a free list of books, send a self-addressed stamped envelope to my post office box, 958 in Holton, Maine, 04730, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, I was kind of amazed. I got a thousand requests. Wow. Uh, but what amazed me was that there were a few hundred post-it notes from people saying, thanks for appearing on the show. I've been following your work for 20 years, 30 years, one guy said. <laughs> uh, what, what I'm getting at is this, that some people ask me, why do you go on the coast to coast? They have a bunch of nuts on there. And, well, they even have Seth Shostak and Michael Shermer, too. Well, maybe they were right. But anyway, uh, <laughs> they, uh, I say because there's a constituency out there of people who are interested in the subject, and I am sort of a voice for those people, they appreciate my standing up and not being cowed by the ancient academics and fossilized physicists of the world. And mm -hmm. You know, these aren't people I know or that know me, but when you get a few hundred post-it notes when they don't need to put anything on there, you know, just send the envelope, uh, it makes it gives you pause. I must be doing something that people want done. Now, in terms of legacy, I suppose I'll always be recognized for Roswell uh, as the original civilian investigator of the Roswell incident. And I'll always... <laughs> in a negative way from some people's viewpoint, MJ-12. And I'm, I'm still embattled in a argument of arguments about Majestic 12, people who are saying that those are obviously fraudulent documents. And I, I keep saying, so give me your reason for saying that the four documents I say are real are fraudulent. I've given my reasons in the book Top Secret Magic in a half a dozen papers in my review of Kevin Randall's book, uh, Case MJ-12, and uh, even the summary chapters in Flying Saucers and Science and so forth, I think I've dealt with all the objections. Don't just tell me that you're sure they're fraudulent. That isn't good enough. Yeah. And what I find is there's, there's a lot of lazy guys out there. Uh, and they, this research by proclamation, the MJ-12 documents provide a good example of that. One guy said uh, that 
all the documents in record group, uh, in entry 267 to record group 341, well, he was just talking about 341, at the National Archives. They're all top secret, and they all have top secret control numbers on them, and Friedman knows this, and, uh, you know, obviously the documents are fraudulent because they don't have any control numbers. Now, that sounds very impressive, and I responded immediately. That was on UFO updates by saying, I've got the what's basically the finder's aid, and only a, a fraction of the documents were top secret. That's the first thing. Second thing is I had already published two documents that came from archives that we know were top secret, I mean, that didn't have control numbers on them. And third, I quoted from two archivists at the Eisenhower and Marshall Archives who said they have loads of top-secret documents that don't have control numbers. And this guy finally apologized on, on UFO updates. I owe Stan Friedman apology. The information I was supposed to get didn't come through, but I don't want to be on your uh, UFO updates anymore. You know, <laughs> take my marbles and go home. <laughs> but, you know, it was one of those charges that made no sense at all. This, I, I should add that Record Group 341 has 9,800 feet of material. It's wow. shelf space. That's about roughly a thousand four-drawer filing cabinets. Holy shit. So nobody has looked through all that stuff, and plenty of it is still classified. And nobody, and, and certainly uh, I've been there a number of times. Uh, so where does a guy get off making a claim like that? You know, yeah. It yeah. comes out of the blue. And it, it's, it's almost as if there were disinformation forces out there forcing people. I mean, there's Dr. Joe Nickel, three degrees in English, the head of the scientific investigation for the Committee for Skeptical Inquiry. Uh, you know, and his, his first response was the documents are obviously fraudulent because they use the wrong date format. 18 November, comma, 1952. That comma doesn't belong there. It violates the government style manual. Well, you know, if you go to the archives, and I've been to 20 of them, you find all kinds of date formats. This is back before you had computers being used, you know. So exactly. You don't yeah. have templates or anything like that. And, you know, it, it's an utterly ridiculous comment. Uh, these were classified documents. Who cared? You know, there was no freedom of information back there. Nobody expected they ever see the light of day. And the National Security Council, I've got some memos indicating it was a real, still is, I guess, a paper-pushing empire. You know, they put together a position paper, send it out to 47 people for their comments, and then integrate all these comments, and they reissued it, and so forth. And they, they were working at 3 o'clock in the morning sometimes. I mean that literally. Yeah. Because uh, I have a memo saying that. And they're worrying about things like, oh, gee, we shouldn't have this comment there. <laughs> you know, exactly. In a document that's that's one of one copy, you know. Yeah. Uh, that's another reason no top secret control number. It's not like you're saying, uh, here's 20 copies of a 20-page document. Well, you got to inventory them if they're classified, so you need a control number. But if it's only going to one person and it's highly classified... Yeah, you don't want more copies of it going around anywhere else. Yeah, you don't want people being aware of it. You know, you, you can't say in a not-top-secret code word document that, oh, yeah, there's this exciting word about this top-secret code word subject. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Things don't work like that. So, 
I'm still doing battle with these guys. Also, there have been some rumbles that get back to me that people in Tennessee were upset at MUFON because supposedly James Carrion at the uh, crash conference in November in Las Vegas had said that, uh, you know, Roswell wasn't a crash flying saucer. It was might have been disinformation to fool the Russians into thinking we had advanced technology yeah. or something like that. And so I got a hold of his paper, and he said something somewhat similar in uh, August. And I pointed out, I mean, he in August he blatantly said, I'm a member of the board of MUFON. This is not an attack on MUFON, but... He blatantly said, well, an alien spacecraft couldn't crash. And I had covered that in my MUFON paper, the pseudoscience of anti-ufology, pointing out that the crashes that I've heard about, Stanley Roswell and the plains of San Augustine and Aztec, New Mexico and Virginia and so forth. Right, there's dozens. There's a bunch. All of these were relatively small objects. They're not the ones flying from Zeta Reticuli here. It's the huge motherships. You know, the half-mile-long Guys, yeah. uh, and the example I use, and just I use it a lot, we have nuclear-powered aircraft carriers, which are over a 1,000 feet long. They can operate for 18 years without refueling. Isn't nuclear power great? <laughs> and think of all the diesel fuel that represents, incidentally. Uh, they carry 75 little airplanes which can operate for, what, two hours without refueling, if you're lucky, you know. They're different situations, in other words, and yeah. they're a lot smaller than the aircraft carrier. You may have noticed that. <laughs> so, uh, but the notion that Roswell was disinformation, I'm sorry. I'm not saying the government didn't lie about it. It's lied about a lot of things. He even suggested that uh, Kenneth Arnold's sighting was disinformation. and uh, He found a, a project that had all kinds of implications that was publicized at about the same time in 47 as uh, Kenneth Arnold's case, Roswell, all through this time. Project Seagull, uh, which is a New Zealand project. You know, it sounds like a great idea. Make an artificial tsunami that washes the Japanese off those islands that are defending. Yeah. <laughs> you know, a 20-foot-high wave? That does a lot of damage, wouldn't it? Oh, yeah. <laughs> that was during the war, and it was done in, in uh, New Zealand, and Somehow he thinks that was disinformation. and So I'm not saying there's no disinformation. Look at all the Air Force published in the two volumes about Roswell. But you can only get to that conclusion if you neglect all the testimony of the first-hand witnesses. Yeah, exactly. The, the noisy negativist will show you the article from the Roswell paper. In the real world, there were articles in major newspapers, from evening newspapers, from Chicago West, on July 8th, 1947. Headline stuff. Lots and lots of paper. And the story it grew all day. News coverage was different back then. No 24-hour TV coverage. No TV coverage. But newspapers would call the place where the story was happening. They called the sheriff's office. They called the base to try to get an update on the story from the original press release, which wasn't that big. And it's typical of the noisy negativists that in an article published this year in the uh, Skeptical Inquirer, Dr. Nickel again, he, he refers to the data in the paper on the 9th uh, of July instead of the 8th. This is after the cover-up story. And he also says, 
an unauthorized press release from an inexperienced PR guy. He said the same thing 10 years ago, about 12 years ago now. <laughs> and it was nonsense then. He didn't know the guy's name. So time marches on, but not Joe. He's not going to check anymore. Yeah, and, yeah. Well, you know, this is so typical. But somebody's got to fight the battling. I did a column in the New Fund Journal about that. Uh, you know, uh, let's get it right, folks. There's plenty of data out there. So uh, we're, I'm still doing battle, and that's part of my legacy, I guess, to get back to that. Also, I've noticed in trying to think to myself, okay, so what's different about me besides I'm a cranky kind of guy? <laughs> uh and part of it is that I go after information. Let me give you an example that I wish more people would do. Uh, I asked the people at the Truman Library, this is a number of years ago, I said, is there anybody alive uh, from that group of people at uh, the Truman administration back then? You know, we're talking a long time ago. Yeah. And they gave me some names, and one of them was a guy named George Easley. And... I said, well, where does he live? Well, he's in the Washington area. They wouldn't give me an address, of course. So I yeah. found him, and I sent him copies of the MJ-12 documents with his permission. And I just called him uh, a few weeks later and asked him questions. I, I realized before I called him back that, uh-oh, if he knows anything, he can't tell me. Yeah. Uh, you know, <laughs> that's a difficulty. So <laughs> I had to ask him questions he could answer. Not do you think the documents are genuine. But did you have any reason to think that they're not genuine? So you could answer that question. Yeah. You knew all those people on the list there. Is there any reason that you would know, that the rest of us wouldn't, that there were a couple of those people Truman couldn't stand, and he would never have applied, appointed them to such a position if uh, if a crash had occurred? You know, stuff like that. Exactly. And so it was great because he... It told me, uh, there's the Cutler-Twining memo, one of the ones I'm most fond of. Mm -hmm. It's one of the four items that I think are genuine. It's only a one-page thing. And he told me that uh, Cutler and James Lay, I asked him, is it possible that that memo, it's just a brief memo changing the time of a briefing for General Twining, uh, by General Twining, is it possible that that was prepared by James Lay? Because... I found, A, that uh, Robert Cutler, who was out of the country, had left instructions to lay to keep things moving out of his in-basket while he was gone, and B, because Lay had met with Ike earlier that day and had a phone conversation with him later that day. The White House phone logs are yeah. accessible and stuff, you know. And so, anyway, he tells me that Cutler and Lay sat next to each other at all the meetings of the National Security Council. Secondly, that they each got copies of everything the other one generated. And third, I said, is it possible that he could have prepared such an item in Cutler's absence? Mm -hmm. Of course. Uh, it's just a, a small item of, you know, changing a briefing time. Uh, and of course he would have done that. Now, if the, if the memo had been signed, then it would be phony because Cutler was out of the country. Right. But it not only isn't signed, it doesn't say slash S slash, meaning original signed by. So I dig out people like that. I found 
retired General Thomas Jefferson DuBose. Uh, sure, I, found, I followed a hunch. He's in the picture with General Ramey in Ramey's office, where Ramey's holding a little piece of paper that you can read. Oh, yeah. You, you know, and those pieces of phony baloney balloon stuff. <laughs> My reasoning was that, well, I knew that uh, Ramey had been West Point and that Blanchard, Colonel Blanchard had been West Point and that they were both dead. Now, many of the guys who weren't West Point got out of the military when the war was over. So there's a pretty good chance that high-ranking officers were West Point. So I, cont I knew that Ramey and Blanchard were dead, but uh, I contacted West Point, and uh, yes, uh, DuBose is still alive, and they gave me a rough idea. Again, they didn't give direct contact <laughs> yeah. information. But I managed to find them. I mean, how many Thomas Jefferson DuBoses are there, you know? And it was very helpful to be able to talk to him. And I met with him later, in person, actually twice. And so there aren't enough people digging out sources of information, you know, that you can check facts. Absolutely. And you yeah. need that. And so if there's any legacy, it's here. It's go to it, guys. Don't sit back and do your research by proclamation. And also, uh, maybe because I'm older than most of the guys, I have perhaps more appreciation of how different things were back then. Now, I mentioned typewriters, you know, no yeah. computers back then, and carbon paper, and onion skin paper, and things like exactly. that. Exactly. People yeah. don't people don't take that kind of stuff into account. Now, in the introduction, I sort of alluded to what I was going to talk about a little bit here, and that is just that in the past year or so, and this is a lot based on my reading of uh, Andropel's Firestorm, which is an excellent book. Yeah, and, uh, yes, it is. I've been kind of of the opinion lately that, you know, the early 70s really sort of took ufology off the rails in a big way with the death of McDonald and the folding of NICAP and Blue Book. And I know some well, the response to the Condon committee. Yeah, exactly. And the Condon was part of the absolutely, yeah, and the in the Condon report. And just to editorialize, I guess I think that you're bringing Roswell to the forefront, and then later MJ12. Even though they became such hotly debated topics, at least it invigorated some new life into ufology. When I think that the '70s seemed like it was such a down period where ufology had kind of lost its way a little bit. That's an interesting point. Yeah, because with NICAP gone and APRO gone. The uh, Fund for UFO Research uh, picked up a bit, the Center for UFO Studies. You know, I was present when Alan Hynek mentioned to a group in Los Angeles, he was getting ready to retire, and this was in the 70s, and he said he was going to go for a government grant uh, to study UFOs. Mm -hmm. And I said, oh, that sounds like a good idea, Alan. How much are you going to ask for? And I think it was 50000 and I knew that this wasn't going to provide what we needed. I mean, you ask for 400000 you settle for 150000 If you're only going to ask for fifty, then you're not saying it's worth much, are you? Exactly, yeah. You know, it was, it was too too little, too late kind of thing. And, you know, uh, QFOS isn't doing a lot, not to say the least. Now, there, there was another problem Dick Hall and I had, incidentally, is that uh, when Bob Bigelow was supporting the three organizations... QFOS, MUFON, and uh, the Fund for UFO Research, at a meeting they were looking at various proposals for research, Bob wanted to have a say in what got funded. It was his money, you understand. Yeah. 
And Dick, in effect, said that, well, no, we'll just take your money. We'll decide. And that was cutting your nose to spite your face kind of thing. Absolutely, and yeah. Bob withdrew his support. He's back in now with the uh, investigative teams that he's funding. But uh, that, that was unfortunate because they all needed the money, let's face it. <laughs> exactly, yeah, yeah. You, you can't do investigations without money. Absolutely, yeah, totally. And it's it, it just to, to sort of go back to what I was saying here about sort of bringing that new life back into ufology, it would be interesting to see what the feel would have looked like had you never ordered that book, had you never taken the interest in, in ufology, because I don't know too many other people that were really rose to such prominence that you did in the late 70s, early 80s. Um, and are still kicking. <laughs> exactly, yeah. I mean, you picked up the flag, and, and you've been running with it ever since, and that's it seemed like there was that vacuum in ufology in the 70s till you came along and sort of, well, obviously you were around for a while, but sort of like burst into the into the upper echelon uh, where you're at now. Yeah, and I did do more in the way of college talks at that time. I probably still have spoken at more. Bob Hastings does quite a few college talks, but uh, I've done over 600. Uh, and I, I mention that only because colleges, if you're going to talk at a college, you're much more likely to get press coverage. You know, both yeah. before and after than if you speak to the local nut society. <laughs> <laughs> and the, the thing that often happened, I noticed, was that if they followed my publicity instructions, the student activities directors and people like that, they often got the biggest crowd they'd ever had for a lecture and loaded with people from off campus. And so I try to tell people, look, if you're going to have a talk about UFOs, you have to stress the positive stress my professional background. Just don't say a UFO expert. What does that mean? Somebody who's read three books and is away from home? You know. <laughs> well, mention GE, GM, Westinghouse, and stuff like that. Absolutely, yeah. And congressional testimony and all that sort of thing. So there was a lot of press coverage, and most of it was pretty decent and giving an indication of public interest. And that's the thing. What I've consistently found is that most people believe in UFOs, but they're afraid that most other people don't. And so they're unwilling to speak out. That's why it's been useful to me to check all my audiences after my lecture. You know, how many people here believe they've seen what I would consider to be a flying saucer? I defined my terms early on. And it's fascinating to watch the hands go up very slowly and reluctantly. Uh, they know I'm not going to laugh, but, you know, how about everybody else? And I point and count, one, two, three, four, five, I'm pointing out there. And by the time I get to the other side of the hall, the ends go up vigorously. Uh, each one of those people thought he was the only one, you know. And typically it's 10% of the audience, mm -hmm. exactly. which is a lot of sightings, you know. And then I ask, how many of you reported what you saw? Whoops, 90% of the hands go down. <laughs> yeah. And when people come to talk to me at my table, they got to tell me about their sighting. Did you report it? No, why not? They think I was some kind of a nut. And so it's been helpful, I think, to the field for others to recognize that, oh, son of a gun, there are a lot of people, a lot of believers out there, and a lot of people have had experiences, and, you know, maybe this isn't such a nutty subject after all. Exactly, yeah. So that's part of my legacy. <laughs> there you go. Exactly. All right. Um, I got one more uh, question here, and then we're going to dive into the questions submitted by the okay. listeners. And that's, uh, 
I don't know if we've talked about this before on the show. I think we've sort of talked about it a little bit, but it seems like this disclosure group is really uh, picking up steam more and more, and I'm hearing more disclosure sort of rumblings from people that I normally wouldn't uh, expect to hear them give such a, I wouldn't say positive spin on it, but just like, you know, they're more inclined to say that it looks likely than, than I, I've heard before. So, but then again, you've been around for decades. You've heard this probably every few years. Uh, we already saw yep. the, the farcical uh, November 27th disclosure claim that went around earlier this year. And, yeah. um, you know, the exopolitics folks, they're still banging on the drum. I'm not sure. I'm of the opinion. My, my opinion on them has kind of turned sour in the last few years, uh, you know, since I got into the thing. Yeah, mine too. Mine too. Uh, they tend to believe anything. And, you know, I keep hammering at people that there is a national security uh, aspect of the whole UFO phenomenon. Let's not forget it. And also the basic rule that you can't tell your friends without telling your enemies. If we have learned new technology of interest to the military, not only how to fly the darn things, but maybe how to detect stuff in the atmosphere, how to hide from somebody else's detection system, uh, all kinds of stuff, then that should not be put out in the public because Osama's out there. Osama, not Obama, Osama. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> and, yeah. Uh, that people say, aren't we entitled to know everything? No, you're not, darn it. <laughs> <laughs> And so I see a place for security, and some of these guys don't. And you know, uh, what can I say? Uh, uh, so I'm, and I'm not impressed also with uh, the Steve Greer stuff. The epitome of what's wrong, in a sense, is that Steve offered to tell everybody he, everything he knew about flying saucers, uh, at a a weekend at his farm in Virginia. Yeah. It only cost $600, <laughs> but they would have to sign a non-disclosure agreement. <laughs> now, from somebody who's heading up the disclosure project, that sounds a little weird, frankly. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. I'd go even and further than weird, but... <laughs> I also don't believe that it's appropriate to talk about free energy and all kinds of stuff we've learned that would help the world solve all its problems. If you got no evidence of that, show me. He was suggesting people invest in some company he was recommending because the guy was well on his way to, you know, tapping the energy of the vacuum and so forth. Well, you know, people have been talking about free energy for a very long time. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> you know, the wind and the sun are free, but uh, the converters aren't. I hate to tell you that. <laughs> and the other thing that I've been sort of musing about lately with these exopolitics folks is just that I'm afraid that they're doing damage, I guess, to the young people that are getting interested in this because I was young yeah. when I first got interested. And um, obviously the disclosure never came after three or four years, and that's when I started to turn kind of sour on the whole thing. And I can imagine yep. that there's a lot of people that – who are young or even newcomers to the field who get interested, the disclosure doesn't come. And instead of being like me, where they gravitate towards the folks like you and all the other great ufologists, they just bail on the field and say, forget it, these guys don't know what they're doing. Yeah, I think there is a, a, a negative impact here, and it does bother me. And, 
I, I do notice that November 27th came and, wo- and went, didn't it? <laughs> yeah. Well, there's another part of this, too. Let's be realistic. The world is in a rather precarious situation right now, economically, if nothing else. You know, we can say things are picking up a little bit, but 10% unemployment in the United States is a major problem. Go to Florida and try to buy property. It's easy because the the foreclosures foreclosures are all over the place. Uh, Times aren't good. Now, an announcement like, uh, you know, aliens are visiting and we can't do anything about it, and, you know, it's not going to have a good impact. The stock market always reacts negatively to new stuff, you know, where there's an uncertainty involved. Yeah. And how's religion going to react? I mean, I am glad to see the Pope's on side. You know, that's something that's happened this past year that he's commented about. You know, that God made us all, and so there's no problem with there being aliens. It's almost like he was uh, trying to keep, uh, to avoid having a, a sort of another Galileo uh, thing going on. You know, the church yeah. has got a black eye for that for a long time. And, you know, the Vatican Observatory uh, co-sponsored uh, well, about 30 scientists looking at the question of search for extraterrestrial life. Uh, they didn't directly get into UFOs, but they did talk about uh, there being life out there, and that's the first big step. And I still get people, I don't know about you, but I still get people who occasionally will say, well, you know, uh, it doesn't say anything in the Bible about you, uh, about UFOs and aliens, and I recommend them all to Barry Downing's book, The Bible in Flying Saucers. And, yeah, they don't talk about saucers. Who used a saucer back then? Only a cup or a mug. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Now. Just to sort of wrap up uh, my questions here, to throw back to the whole disclosure thing in general and just sort of how the meme is growing, do you feel more positive than you did, you know, in the 80s or the 90s or even now this decade's practically over, so the the aughts, uh, do you feel like it's getting better or are we pretty much in the same spot we were in, you know, in 83 or 93 or 03? Well, there are a couple of things that have changed uh, in a positive direction. One is the cable channels which carry an awful lot of stuff about UFOs. Not all good, but more good than bad, and it gets a lot of people interested. In other words, it's having an impact. Mm-hmm. Second thing is that uh, there, I think there's been more positive coverage, if you will, uh, starting with that O'Hare case uh, back a couple of years ago, you know, yep. uh, which got more hits on the Chicago Tribune website than anything they'd ever published, much to their surprise. Uh, and that encouraged the, the more discussion about other stuff. Even this recent MOD, the English uh, MOD uh, release, that they were closing the office. And I saw a lot of people saying, yeah, it must have been a big office, $73,000 a year. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> How much investigation can you get for that? But the fact that it was mentioned in so many places and without blind acceptance, well, it's sensible to close because there's nothing going on. I didn't see that. I saw a much more, uh, you know, what is going on here? They did find cases they couldn't identify, so what's going on? I keep trying to tell people about General Carol Bolander and his saying that reports which could affect national security are not part of the Blue Book system. And Nick Pope has had a chance to speak out, and Nick got pretty good coverage. And Dr. Clark uh, in England, both of those guys. So... The, I think the press attitude about that story was much more positive than it might have been just five years ago. 
Yeah, yeah. So maybe we're seeing a slow change in at least yeah. perspective, and that's what we got to start with is the change of perspective. Yeah. Yeah. Pardon the interruption, but I'm Mike Wilbon. Just a few more days until Christmas, Tone. You've been naughty or nice? I'm Tony Kornheiser. I've been Jewish. Let me sort of ask this one more time. Right. Naughty or nice? No, it doesn't really matter, does it, if sure. I've been naughty or nice? Sure, because you never know what other presents you might get or be denied. I've been nice. I've oh. been really, really nice. Something from Perkins You have away. been naughty. You. There are pictures of you. It's the Banal of America Audio Holiday Special, featuring Stanton Friedman. Happy Holidays! It's the one night of the year when we all act a little nicer, we smile a little easier, we share a little more. For a couple of hours out of the whole year, we are the people that we always hoped we would be. Have a Merry Christmas, everybody. All right, now we'll dive into the questions submitted by the listeners. We got about ten okay. here, and, and uh, you know some of these are, are way outside your wheelhouse. So um, <laughs> we're definitely starting out with one that's definitely way outside your wheelhouse. But uh, you know a lot of them are within the UFO realm, so don't worry about that. And um, I made the rule: no, no UFO reports. We don't want to waste time here with a. a five to ten minute detailed story of what they saw in the sky and then followed by what was it um and that's it so we'll we'll dive in here the first one's from mystery man some of these are message board names so bear (laughs) bear with me on some of the more creative ones mystery man asks uh what is your opinion of 9-11 and the new world order conspiracy theory uh that it was an inside job and is it connected to the ufo cover-up well, that's a lot of stuff rolled into one. I'm, I've read some of the stuff about the conspiracy there. I'm particularly interested in the, the building, the way the buildings collapse straight down, which sounds like a planned demolition. And finding thermite in the materials, you know, an explosive material is a, another thing. But I haven't dug deeply enough into this to have a strong opinion. It's frankly in my gray basket. There's a possibility. And it doesn't necessarily have to be the government that was doing it. It could have been somebody else. Uh, people forget, you know, there's a huge oil world out this out there, uh, hundreds of billions of dollars involved, and there are people with bad notions of what should happen in the world. So I'm not saying there aren't people who didn't want to do something like that in a conspiracy sort of way. Whether it was the U.S. government, I have no reason to think it was, but I can't say it wasn't. So... It's a small maybe. Okay, fair enough. And and what about it being connected to the UFO cover-up? That's kind of a stretch. But, well, uh, you never know. It's uh, yeah, it is folks. kind of a stretch. <laughs> uh, I think there's plenty to do in, with, with regard to the cover-up itself. I mean, admittedly, again, going back to oil in the Middle East and all that sort of stuff, if an announcement were to be made that aliens are coming here and, oh, by the way, they have figured out better ways of energy production and ground transport and air transport, that would wreak havoc with the oil companies and the car companies and the plane companies, wouldn't it? Absolutely. So, you know, there may be a distant connection there. Uh, I, I, quick conspiracy theory. When Henry Kissinger was around, you know, he was close to the Rockefellers. And remember the oil embargo uh, way back in the 70s? Yeah. And my thought was that, gee whiz, if Henry knows that they're going to make an announcement about flying saucers, Let's make the oil valuable 
while we can get it out of the ground now, it ain't going to be worth much next year, kind of. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, I never thought of that. There was a little water gate that got in the way of that. <laughs> well, you know, Nixon was supposed to, was, he talked to Bob Emenegger and Alan Sandler, and they had that show, UFOs Past, Present, and Future, in which the government was going to be moving forward with saying some positive things. Well, Watergate meant that that wasn't a good time. Yeah, seems like uh, something always You know, when you have a lame duck president, he can get away with almost anything, but one who has to resign, <laughs> that's not the time to do it. So, who knows? Uh, but Henry did know the Rockefellers, and he did know what was going on in the government, so possibility. There you go. Yeah, absolutely. We'll move to the uh, to the next question. It comes from Greeboog, and it's Sue. Uh, she actually put her name there, so it's Sue. And she wants to know if you've given any thought to the highly adaptable von Neumann probes being responsible for UFOs rather than flesh and blood aliens. And I had to look that up, and the von Neumann probes are self-replicating spacecraft. Yeah. I've heard about von Neumann's work. Uh, he also said in 1949, part of this work on the new book, uh, Science Was Wrong, was that we've done about all we can with computers. Uh, not quite, Johnny. Sorry about that. <laughs> I, I think the, I, I don't think you need self-replicating probes. I think that's be, based on the notion that look how long it would take to go any place. So you got to use robots. And it's going to take so long, they have to be self-replicating, you know, to like, to colonize a particular place. And I think that that's not appropriate to think that way. I think technological progress comes from doing things differently in an unpredictable way. And when you look at some of the things that were said about computers not too many years ago, you know, who would need a computer at home? What could you do with it? And uh, IBM, you know, there may be a need for half a dozen large computers and stuff like that. Uh, I prefer Gordon Moore's law, you know, a doubling every couple of years. Of yeah. Colony. It's routine today to talk about terabytes, storage on a hard disk, you know, and how many transistors on a piece of uh, silicon, whatever. That's incredible, you know. And so what I'm saying is, Contrary to what people think, and it's because we physicists don't use terms that make any sense to anybody, uh, at 1G, it only takes a year to get close to the speed of light. And with nuclear fusion, you can give particles 10 million times as much energy per particle as they can get in a dumb old chemical rocket. So I don't think we need self-replicating probes. We have guys who can get here in a hurry, taking advantage of Einstein. So I think it's off. It's off the table as far as I'm concerned. Okay. Okay, here's a strange one from Owlman. He wants to know, and this is a serious question. I said no silly questions, but this is a serious question, so he's, he's uh, being serious about this. Um, do you ever dream about the Roswell crash or have any Roswell-related dreams, seeing as the subject matter has been such a huge part of your life now for so long? Uh, I don't dream about the Roswell thing, although I must <laughs> admit, in, in getting... Uh, things together for this latest book, I found I was waking up thinking about things in the book. <laughs> so, you know, but not really. No, uh, I try to deal with facts and data and all the rest of that. And, you know, one sad part is, of course, most of the first-hand witnesses are long gone. 
you know, I, I just wish somebody would make an effort to collect reports from any military guy who was there and knows something and witness names won't be used without permission and the government says nothing of interest happened, so how can they prosecute you, you know, or, or persecute you as the time, exactly. uh, as the case may be. So, no, I don't dream okay. about <laughs> I told you some of these were outside of your wheelhouse. <laughs> All right. Here's another one that's a little bit off the beaten path. Uh, what's your opinion? This is from Richard Thomas in Wales. He's a staff writer for Banal of America. He wants to know what your opinion is on the Kennedy assassinations and uh, where were you when Kennedy died? Well, I remember where I was. I was working at General Motors' Allison Division in uh, Indianapolis on the military compact reactor program. And our offices were, there was a guard at the door, classified area and stuff. Somebody's wife called in to say he'd been shot. Now, we couldn't have radios or cameras in those areas. So we were isolated. We didn't know what the heck was going on. There was no way for a bunch of us to, to call anybody, really. Uh, and uh, I, I remember it. And it was disturbing. It was very disturbing because the first thought was, is, some, is this a revolution going on here? Is somebody trying to take out the top and take over? So I was very distressed about that. I don't think there's a real connection with UFOs. But I don't think we have all the answers to what killed him either, or the who, you know, the group, if you will, killed yeah. him. And I think Oswald was a kind of patsy, and the Ruby thing, you know, to watch that on television was truly incredible. On the other hand, you want to say, well, Texas, when I checked a few years ago, they had 16 million people and 64 million guns. <laughs> and that's a little overkill, if you want <laughs> So if it was going to happen any place, I've spent a lot of time in Texas. I'm, this is not a knock on Texans. It's just saying things are a little different down there. And so, you know, you hear all the mafia stuff. Uh, Jack Kennedy and Bobby made a lot of people angry. I heard a theory the other day that, look, it was through the mob that Jack got elected, uh, all those votes in Chicago and stuff. And then after he gets elected, he and Bobby go after the mob and the unions and, you know, other stuff. So maybe this was payoff for that. I don't know. I'm not a politician. I was sad because I was impressed with Kennedy. You know, you can say all the bad things you've ever heard about all the women and all the rest of us, but he inspired the world. And his setting the goal for the, of the Apollo program I've worked on half a dozen programs which desperately needed top-side goal-setting. And NASA hasn't had a decent goal since get the man to the moon by yeah. the end of the decade kind of thing. So that, that vision word that the first George Bush didn't like, but Kennedy had it, and he passed it on to a lot of people, and we needed that, and we needed it again. Uh, and so... You know, it, it was a sad day as far as I'm concerned. It had nothing to do with being a Republican or a Democrat. Yeah. But here was a guy who inspired and was very sharp. <laughs> I appreciate that. Okay. Uh, this next one's from Roz. She's in Toronto, and if you ever go up to Toronto, she wants to take you out for lunch. Uh, she made a mention of that, and she would like you to autograph her book when you go out to lunch. Maybe she should just order okay. a new book, and you'll autograph it and then send it, so we'll see. I autograph then, everything that goes out under PayPal or by mail or whatever. There you go, Ross. Um, uh, my website, stantonfriedman.com. Real mm -hmm. easy. 
pretty easy to find, stantonfriedman.com, all one word. She wants to know about your schedule and about how many days you're on the road, and are you still blazing the trail, or are you starting to settle down a little bit? Well, right now, uh, because I'm talking to some people in Hollywood, and because I haven't done a mailing looking at colleges, I'll be speaking in Roswell in July, that I've already been asked, and I'm going to be speaking at the Association for Research and Enlightenment in November in Virginia Beach, the Edgar Casey Group. Yep. And I spoke there several years ago. It was fascinating. Uh, and aside from those, I've got nothing else booked for the coming year. There may be a talk. Somebody in Florida is talking about doing something. But I'm hoping to, uh, A, do some filing. I'm about 10 years behind in my office here. <laughs> Seriously, I'm a one-man operation, and filing has not been high on the list, you know. And B, if this movie thing comes through and maybe memoirs and stuff like that, I might get busy with that. But I don't want to write a book for the next month, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be glad to get over this. So my schedule's on my website, and I've got to update it and get rid of the dates that have already been filled, but, I, you know, you can read the schedule. But uh, nothing much happening. If anybody out there wants me, you know, read my contact information's on the website. Absolutely, uh, yeah. I'm easy to get to. I don't hide. And people are shocked when I answer my phone. Who else is going to answer my phone? I'm a one-man operation. That's what I tell people all the time, yeah, yeah. And and just to piggyback onto that, a question of my own here. I, I want to put over Paul Kimball's excellent film, uh, Stanton Friedman is Real. It really... Yeah is a, a fascinating sort of look at what you do when you go to these things. But I guess talk a little bit about, you know, when you go to one of these events, you said there's interviews before and, and press coverage afterwards. You, you probably spent a lot of time, you know, not just doing the presentation, but doing a lot of, for lack of a better term, public relations work for ufology in a way, doing a lot of these interviews. Yeah, stuff. I, I do. And I, I kind of enjoy that. But uh, people think, oh, you get to travel. It must be a lot of fun and all that. I'm busy when I travel. When I'm in Roswell last year. I gave four lectures in three days, I guess. I signed a hundred books. Uh, and people want to talk to me. And I don't mind them wanting to talk to me. They also want to take my picture or have their picture taken with me with these new modern cameras, you know. <laughs> which are very fast and fit in your pocket, so everybody's got one or two. And so I'm busy at these things, uh, and I, I get enough feedback to know that people appreciate that I don't just come out and do a thing and leave. Yeah. You know, that I'm there for them to talk to. And uh, I get there early. Uh, I was in Tennessee before the program started for the day at 9 o'clock. I didn't go on until 2, and people wanted to talk to me. So... What should I do? Say, no, I'm too busy. I got a lecture to give, and they're not paying me to do anything else. So, you know, that's that's not how I approach things. I feel a responsibility. So, uh, yeah, I, I do make the effort when I go someplace, and I stress to the sponsors. You can give my phone number to the radio shows that want to talk to me in advance. I'd be happy to do classroom visits on campuses or radio and TV shows during the day, anything to help promote the program. Uh, you know, the students want to take me out to dinner, that's okay, as long as I get back to the to the church on time. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
I had a couple of close calls that way. Uh-oh. Yeah, yeah, definitely people should check out uh, that film, and, and I can speak from experience that you can barely get a word in edgewise with Stan because he's surrounded by people at these events. It's very hard to <laughs> talk to him because everybody wants to talk to Stan Freeman, so uh, that that is a testament to your work, and, and it's obvious by the all the questions we got sent uh, for the holiday special here. Now, the next one comes from Ethel, and she wants to know, or he wants to know, because that's a message board name, so I don't want to <laughs> assume oh, okay. her, her name is Ethel. I would be interested in Stan's views on the alleged Nazi Bell experiments, where it is rumored that scientists were playing with anti-gravity at a facility in Poland during the war. Do you think this is what was really going on, or maybe they were trying to refine atomic materials for a potential weapon? I have not been impressed by the data that I've seen about the so-called Nazi involvement, but the Germans had talked about wanting to design around vehicle, uh, you know, think about it. The ideal shape for a craft is round. It takes up the least space. Uh, it can go up straight up and straight down. Airplanes are grossly inefficient in their use of space. I mean, wingtip to wingtip, you know, front to back, a lot of space. And I think a lot of people have mistaken artist drawings, concepts for reality. Those aren't photographs you're seeing, folks. They're drawings. They're sketches. I worked on proposals when I was in industry. We put together beautiful-looking sketches of what we were going to build would look like. doesn't mean we built it. <laughs> yeah. And so also, one has to ask the question. If the Germans had that capability, why didn't they use it? You know, there was a war going on. Yeah. And it's the same for people who are saying, well, these are all ours. Really? Well, we've had a few wars. Why didn't we use it? We designed the stealth aircraft, 10 billion bucks, 10 years. It was used. And so uh, I think there's an element of unreality in that, a kind of paper world uh, that people are too impressed by. Uh, there's a lot of, I'll call that stuff disinformation. <laughs> okay. All right, the next one comes from SWMO Hillbilly. It's Den on Twitter. Uh, he wants to know, what is the oddest or most unsettling experience you've had on an investigation? One unsettling experience was when Kathleen Martin and I were being inter uh, interviewed for a program that was on Vision TV in Canada about the Betty and Barney Hill case. We were down in New Hampshire. We were out in the middle of nowhere on a dirt road, not far from where they had been abducted. And uh, a lot of trees, no streetlights, no nothing. We're in a raised area, and the guy's filming us, and suddenly he says, hey, what's that behind you? Hey, you don't normally, when you're on camera, have the camera. Yeah. <laughs> So we turn around, and there were high trees around, but you could see this, whatever it was, above the tree, and there'd be a light, and it'd go out, and next to it, another one, and another one, and another one. <laughs> we looked at that. We hadn't heard anything. This didn't last very long, but they were filming the whole time. Interesting. And it made made it into the television program on Vision TV. They did a nice job on that. And the funny thing was we went back to the hotel, it was, this was dark when this happened. It was nighttime, eight something or other, and uh, the sun had been down for a couple of hours. And somebody there wanted to talk to us because they'd had a UFO sighting that day. And when she sat and sketched what she had seen, it was exactly what we had seen, except it was three hours earlier. Wow. And so 
it was very strange. The next day, the camera crew filmed them and us and so forth. Now, we think that it might well have been military flares being dropped by the Vermont National Guard. Peter Jeremiah, a very active investigator up there and had been head of the Newfound Group up there, had done some checking and, and came up with that as a possible explanation. But to say that we were uh, surprised by this little bit of a you know, what are they doing? They want to get on camera? What's going on? <laughs> exactly, yeah. <laughs> All right. Um, the next one comes from Linkster. Linkster. And uh, this person wants to know, do you think the government will ever come clean about Roswell and San Augustine after 62 years of deception? And in parentheses it says, a polite way of calling them liars. And uh, this person also wants to let you know that they agree with you that research by proclamation is worthless and McAndrew and Weaver need to put up or shut up. I don't know who they are, but you may. They wrote the two Air Force reports. Ah, uh, okay. Uh, and there, there's an article on my website, uh, stanfriedman.com, about government UFO lies, and it's a long article. <laughs> there are a lot of lies, and that, that was under them. Now, what was the first part of that? Uh, the first part is, do you think the U.S. government will ever come clean about Roswell yeah. and San Augustine? Well, only if they're pushed. If we could find a Woodward and Bernstein to blow the lid off the cosmic Watergate the way it was done for the political Watergate, yes. There's no incentive for them to open it up. Uh, first, they got to admit that there have been lies going on. Second, they have to be prepared to deal with the impact. I mean, I've recommended in uh, Flying Saucers and Science what should be done. One of the things, if you're going to make an announcement, it should be an international announcement and it should include notions to the effect that uh, international meetings, conferences have been set up to deal with the religious, political, economic, uh, and so forth aspects of the problem. And remember now, on this planet this year, uh, there'll be about a trillion dollars spent on things military. Boy, it would be a real change if suddenly we're all earthlings and somebody else is saying, hey, you idiots, stop doing what you're doing. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, does anybody want to grab that ball and run with it? Uh, I'm not so sure they do. So the only hope is if we can get some courageous investigative journalists, spend six months with me and Bruce McAbee and other people like that, and look at all the blacked-out documents and the whited-out documents, and there's no question, cosmic Watergate indeed. But do they have guts enough to do that? Probably not. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, well, that's uh, that's been the problem for a long time. Um, yeah. Now, Larry Carlson wants to know what your take is on the very recent, seen by millions, spiral blue light display that hovered above Norway. I looked at a number of those uh, stories, and I, it is kind of fascinating. you got to admit that. And it was also fascinating that the Russians did a flip-flop. Uh Oh, it's not ours. And then, well, uh, yeah, it probably was our failed rocket test. And I've, I've seen different numbers. Any, out of 14 launches of that particular new advanced super special rocket, which can overcome all the defenses, it says, I think uh, at least six out of the 14 have failed. Oh, wow. Now, one, one article said nine. So you can imagine they're not happy about admitting that. Yeah. That we wouldn't be either, you know. But it, it is the most peculiar 
thing that I've seen. And I, I would add in that there's a possibility here that part of what we're seeing is a result of the very high latitude and plasma physics kind of stuff that goes on to produce the aurora. You know, there's a flood of charged particles that come in from the sun. So they might have interacted with the escaping fuel. Remember, it was a third stage failure. So there's a lot of fuel there that apparently <laughs> got dumped, so to speak. Yeah. And so uh, you have to allow for a peculiar situation that wouldn't happen at a lower latitude. Uh, but I have no reason to call that a flying saucer. Uh, they're accustomed to seeing uh, aurora, and they say it sure wasn't aurora, and I agree with them when looking at the stuff. It is fa what was fascinating to me as much as anything was how much coverage it got. Yeah, and, uh, yeah. Pretty much straight coverage, and uh, like I say, I can feel for the Russian guy who had to say, yes, we did put out an announcement that we were going to be testing. They have to put out a warning, you know, stay away from the White Sea or whatever it was. Mm -hmm. And, you know, uh, gee whiz, we had another failure. Nobody wanted to admit that because they've been bragging up this thing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, our new and super duper, nobody can do anything about this missile. <laughs> we can't make it work. That's the problem. <laughs> so there, there's a lot of politics involved in there is what I'm saying. And I, I found it quite fascinating. And I, all the coverage I saw was pretty straight, though. Yeah, yeah, it seemed that way. It seemed that way. Well, it's hard to – the pictures were so fantastic that it's hard to really deny that it was at least some weird fantastic aerial phenomena. Uh, you yeah. know, so you kind of have to play it straight, I guess, because you can't be like, oh, these people are silly because the pictures were so outstanding. that." And so many people, so what was it, 7.40 in the morning, something like that. Yeah. Uh, um, so there were a lot of people about. <laughs> exactly. All right, the next one comes from Red Sun Superman. He wants to know if you could have been on the case from day one on any other UFO-related event other than Roswell, and, and uh, we'll leave out MJ-12 and the, the Hills case because we've already uh, – you wrote the okay. books on those. Um, which one would you have devoted your life to solving? Well, I don't know about devoting my yeah. life to it. I, I, I mean, I like the work that Jim McDonald did on the RB-47 case, for example. Six very highly trained individuals, a sophisticated aircraft with all kinds of gear, sighting lasts for well over half an hour uh, over the Gulf of Mexico and uh, Texas and Oklahoma and Louisiana and that area. And this peculiar thing uh, being observed by them all and by their radar, and they tell the ground, and the ground sees it, the, the military radar spots them and the object at the same time. That would have been one. Or the uh, JAL case, where we have also radar visual case with a crew and a 747 and this huge, twice the size of an aircraft carrier kind of thing. Which was explained away by the noisy negativist as Jupiter and Mars. Now that's pretty neat when they can fly uh, in tandem with an airplane going in a circle and be picked up by the plane radar. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So the RB forty-seven and the JAL case. Interesting. Okay. Now just uh, just to piggyback on that, what do you what do you think of the Iranian case? That's a pretty prominent uh, one. Excellent case, the Iranian jet case, and there's been some very good work done on that. And James Fox in his movies uh, has talked about those. Uh, the pilot of one of those planes has come forward. One of the uh, F-4s, American plane flown by Iranian pilots, going after this crazy thing that they saw. And uh, 
it releases, I mean, I suppose that air pilot felt when he sees this thing coming out of the UFO and it does a full rejoin after coming near him. I expect he thought he was going to be splattered out of the sky. Yeah, yeah, that would be a pretty scary moment. A good case, and the interesting, one of the many interesting aspects of the case is that the distribution list for the report about it included a lot of key places in Washington. Somebody was taking this very seriously. Yeah, it does tell us a lot about where that information ended up. Now, we got another question from someone in Wales here. Jeff in Cardiff, Wales, wants to know, uh, and I think we might have talked about this last year, but we'll touch on it again here since he asked. Uh, why was the nuclear plane development program halted, and if it has not, where will it lead? Well, that was way back in the late 50s, and we were spending lots of money. I like to stress to people who think that I was working in uh, paper studies, it said on Wikipedia one time. <laughs> we were spending $100 million at General Electric Aircraft Nuclear Propulsion Department, 3,500 people full-time, 1,100 of them engineers and scientists. We developed a lot of technology for high-energy, high-temperature nuclear systems. The advantage of such a plane would be unlimited range. I mentioned the aircraft carrier can go 18 years without refueling. Well, you know, even a year for an airplane without refueling would be one heck of an achievement in every place is within reach. The, there's several different reasons for the demise of the program. The administration wasn't pushing it. It had the, the primary reason, in my view, when I was there for three years, I got out while the getting was good, which is a good thing, <laughs> uh, before they canceled the program. Uh, the primary thing that was wrong was they had no leadership on the program. We needed an Admiral Rickover who pushed the nuclear submarine program, you know. Mm -hmm. People hated his guts. Some people who worked for him, other people thought he was the greatest thing since Peter Hunter, but... He said, this is where we're going, guys, and if you don't want to go there, get off the train. He was a hard-driving guy whose goal it was to develop a sensibly operating nuclear submarine. Even though the battleship boys and the aircraft carrier boys all said, what are you wasting your money on that for? Build aircraft carriers, build battleships, you know. But he went after it, and Congress learned to trust him, so he got the money he needed and uh, so the Aircraft Nuclear Propulsion Department didn't have that kind of leadership, and they had no investment. They owned the rug on the boss's floor in Cincinnati. It was a government building and so forth. It was a cost-plus contract. So there were problems. They did do – they had one reactor that had a meltdown because they'd done a lot of stupid things and hadn't – nobody got hurt. But – it certainly set the program back in contrast to the nuclear submarine program, you see, which moved forward rapidly and solidly and under tight control. Yeah. So, you know, part of the reason for the program in the first place was somebody said, hey, the Russians are working on nuclear-powered airplanes. Whether they were or not, I don't know. <laughs> it was very exciting to work on the program. I did a lot of experiments down in Fort Worth, Brent, dealt with exotic materials, beryllium, beryllium oxide, boron carbide. Tungsten alloys, uh, depleted uranium, lithium hydride, all kinds of weird stuff. It was fun. I mean, literally, it worked hard, but it was fun because it was real world. I, I ran five, eight weeks altogether, I guess, of experiments down in Texas, and 24 hours a day they were operating. So I was keeping busy, and it was exciting. You'd tell them what configuration to test, and they did it, and then you'd look at the data and tell them what to do next and stuff. I was a young squirt. You know? Yeah. <laughs> so it was great. But uh, 
Now, I don't think anything has come of it. The technology is sitting on the shelf. We actually ran in-pile tests, that means tested materials, inside a reactor at 1,800 to 2,000 degrees. Now, submarines, normally it's only about 1,000 degrees because the pressure of water, steam, et cetera, is, is too high when you get much above that. But we were uh, really up there with temperature and excitement. So, okay. hey, you win some, you lose some. <laughs> yeah, there you go. All right, we got one last question here from the listeners, okay. and it is uh, Tina Senna. She's also a staff writer at BOA. Uh, she wants to know, how hard is it for you to maintain the view that UFOs and EBEs are from outer space when everyone's embracing the idea of interdimensional beings and UFOs from anywhere but space? Do you think someday you'll be vindicated? And I'll just add the addendum here that not everyone's embracing the idea, but it is coming into vogue, it seems, in the last decade, uh, the interdimensional theories. Well, I think it's a cop-out. People won't do their homework about technology or buying into the nonsense from the SETI cultists silly effort to investigate cultists, you know, mm-hmm. you can't get here from there. So they must warp space and time or other dimensions. I'm not saying they're not using other dimensions. Why not? And I used to illustrate, take a piece of paper, one corner to the other, you know, the spy, the uh, spider <laughs> and the fly. If you could get somebody to bend the corners right next to each other, uh, no problem with the uh, fly leaving before the, sp- <laughs> the spider gets there. But I think it's a cop-out. It's saying, oh, gee, we, the real world is too strange, you know. Uh, you know that uh, we talked about Around the World in 80 Days with Jules Verne, I guess it was? Yeah. And that was, uh, one of the 18-something or others. The uh, space station and all the other satellites do it roughly 90 minutes. Magellan took three years. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, the, the satellites, of course, are not using sails, and they're not using balloons. They're using different technology. So if you're going to say we're limited to chemical rockets, gee, you really can't get here from there. I worked on nuclear rocket engines. Uh, the biggest one was seven feet in diameter and operated at twice the power of Grand Coulee Dam, 4,400 megawatts. Oh, wow. Seven feet in diameter. That program was canceled, too, but we did test it successfully on the ground. It was exciting. It was real. It was classified. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> what I'm saying is the ancient academics and fossilized physicists don't seem to know about these programs. All right, and you're not a and you're not a big uh, proponent of the interdimensional theory. I guess you're saying. No. Okay. Right. Fair enough. Well, that wraps up the questions from the listeners. Thank you for giving them a holiday gift. Uh, from you, really. It was, I uh, just facilitated the whole process, but uh, I'm sure they're okay. going to be very happy to have heard it. So, before we let you go, what's next for you? You told us uh, you're going to be at Roswell and you're working on the new book, Science is Wrong. Uh, when can we expect to get our hands on that? And uh, what other sort of stuff have you got percolating there at uh, Friedman HQ? Well, the, uh, the book is supposed to be out in June. It could be sooner. Publishers are a little, uh, not giving you too precise an answer for that sort of thing. It's, it's, it'll be literally in by the time this program is broadcast. Uh, and what happens after that? I don't know. I, this Hollywood is beckoning with a possible effort. I can't say much about it, but I've been talking to people, got a contract that has a lot of ifs in it. You know? <laughs> If they can sell it, if they can raise the money, if they can do this, that, or the other thing. And I've been there before. But so that's a possibility. And 
Uh, you know, it's awful cold here today. I'd like to be able to go <laughs> I live in Fredericton, New Brunswick, for those people who wonder about such things. That's east of Maine. And it, it does get cold, and last year we had 13 feet of snow. So a few trips to Hollywood would be okay with me. Yeah, that's for sure. Uh, beyond that, I don't know. This is the first time in many, many years, which I haven't had a full schedule staring at me in the face. And like I say, uh, maybe that's good. I'm not going to give up and sit back and watch television kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We don't want you starting up a soap opera addiction or anything like that. No, no. <laughs> well, that's good. You know, you need a little downtime to sort of, uh, like you said, yeah. just do some filing. And I really do hope you uh, tackle this memoir thing because I've been I've been calling for it for the last few years here on the program, and I loved Bud Hopkins' memoir, and I can imagine that yours would be absolutely mind-blowing. So I hope you do embrace that. It'll idea. be different. <laughs> <laughs> Stan, I, I can't thank you enough. Uh, as I said, this is the fifth year we've done the holiday special, and every year it gets more and more fun, and, and this year, again, with the, with the listener questions was a lot of fun, and, and we covered a lot of stuff that I don't think we've ever heard you talk about, like JFK and 9-11 and some of this other stuff. Yeah. And, and I really enjoy the conversation. I appreciate it. As I said at the beginning of the program, you know, you, you took a chance on me there in Washington, and I know you do a lot of interviews, so you probably take a chance on a lot of folks. Otherwise, we wouldn't be doing this program. We're over 100 episodes in and, and, and wow. bringing, bringing a lot of folks out there to the listeners. And if it wasn't for you, like I said, if you had blown me off that day, I would have said, ah, forget it. Who cares about this stuff? I'll do something else. But, you know, you really sort of uh, gave me a chance, and I really appreciate that. And if, if not for you, we wouldn't I be doing I hope we this. do five years more. Let's hope for five more and five more after that. Thanks again, Stan, for coming okay. on the show. Have a very happy holidays. Thanks much. And uh, we'll talk to you next year for the holiday special number six. Happy holidays. That does it for this year's edition of the BOA Audio Holiday Special. Big, big, super huge, eternal thanks to the legendary Stanton Friedman for coming back on the show, helping us make the BOA Audio Holiday tradition possible one more year. If you haven't by now, you definitely want to check out Stanton Friedman's website, www.stantonfriedman.com. All one word, StantonFriedman.com. If you haven't read the books by Stanton Friedman, you really must have them as part of your UFO library. Top Secret Magic, Crash at Corona, Captured, and Flying Saucers and Science. Plus, you want to be on the lookout for Stan's next book, Science is Wrong, as he said, coming sometime in 2010. Moving right along now, it's time for BOA Audio listener feedback, and as I teased, at the end of last week's show, we're going to be hearing from a couple of old friends of the program here. I couldn't think of a better way to celebrate the holiday special than to hear from two great BOA Audio listeners who left their mark on the program. And ironically enough, both are international listeners. So let's just dive in and uh, get reacquainted with some old friends of BOA Audio. The first one comes from our buddy Klaus Jaeger who helped us put together the Swedish ufology episode with Klaus Svahn last year. And he recently wrote to me to touch base and uh, give us an update on what he's been up to. Let's hear what Klaus has to say. Hi Tim, it's the Swedish listener Klaus again. Just wanted to drop a couple of lines to show that I'm still alive and I'm still a huge fan of your show. I loved the last Mastodon season. The three A-list guests at the end was simply amazing, but the one I find most memorable like the other listeners seem to do as well, is Bruce Rocks. I really felt the radio chemistry between you and Bruce there. Excellent stuff. Surely going to read his book until the next show with him. 
Oh, and I live in Berlin, Germany now, so if you're going to Europe for some beers, don't go to Stockholm, pick Berlin. I'm still working on my German, but as soon as it's nicely brushed up, I'll dive into the German UFO scene and we'll try to find someone prolific for you to interview. It may take some time, though. Until then, I'd like to request that you interview Norman Berggren, author of The Ringmakers of Saturn. Best regards, mate, Klaus Jaeger. Thank you so much for writing in, Klaus. Really made my day when I opened up my email about a week ago and saw your letter. For those folks who haven't been listening that long, you got to know, Klaus really helped us shape a big part of BOA Audio last season as well as this season. Put us in touch with Klaus Vaughn for an amazing edition of BOA Audio last year talking about Swedish ufology. And then through that, I ended up doing an interview with someone you're going to be hearing from in a few weeks talking all about Norwegian ufology. So the UFO scene of Norway you're going to be hearing about on BOA Audio in a few weeks. All of that was thanks to super BOA Audio listener Klaus Jaeger. He's the man. Thank you so much for writing in, Klaus. I'm so glad you enjoyed the rest of the season. Thank you for helping us get Klaus Svon on the show and making that suggestion. I'm looking forward to talking to somebody from the German UFO scene. No worries, buddy. I'm a patient man. I can wait. And I'm looking forward to seeing who you dig up for us once you've brushed up that German. I'm definitely interested in talking to Norman Berggren. I will look into it. Obviously, Ringmakers of Saturn is a seminal book in the world of esoterica. I've heard so much about the book, but I don't know too much about Norman Berggren or where he's at or what he's doing. But he is definitely somebody I'd be interested in talking to, so I will begin looking for Norman Berggren. And I will pass along your regards to Bruce Rucks. We got so many emails about the Bruce Rucks trilogy on BOA Audio. I'm happy to report Bruce will almost certainly be back in Season 5. So stay tuned for more Bruce Rucks. And once again, thanks for writing in. Klaus Jaeger, now in Germany, no longer in Stockholm, but still hanging out over there in Europe and enjoying the BOA Audio, helping to spread the word about the program throughout the European states. Thank you so much, Klaus. Our next email comes from another longtime friend of the program, Damien in Hong Kong. He's the guy that helped us put together the Neil Gould interview on BOA Audio way back in the beginning part of Season 4. Damien recently shot me a line on Facebook to touch base and let us know what he's been up to since uh, he last wrote us on the program. Here's what he has to say. Hey Tim, Damien here. Remember me? Your man on the ground in Hong Kong. I just thought you'd like to know I attended one of Neil Gould's seminars last weekend where he had what he claimed were pieces of the wreckage from the Roswell crash. If you're interested in the story, I can elaborate, as there is a lot more to it. I know you're a busy guy, so let me know if you want any more information. Also, there's a really famous ghost hunter slash researcher here who is seriously respected by all hongers. I'm trying to get some more info on him. If you like, I might be able to get you two hooked up for a show. Chinese ghosts are the real Ugabuga stuff, as you say. You should really hear about the headless Meijong ghosts. That's some creepy shit. Great new series, by the way. Damien in Hong Kong. Of course I remember you, Damien. You're the man. You helped us out huge putting us in touch with Neil Gould for the Hong Kong Ufology edition of BOA Audio. I'm definitely interested in hearing what you picked up at the Neil Gould seminar, so send me your information. I already wrote him back telling him this, but I'll repeat it here at the end of the show. And I am 
totally interested in this Hong Kong ghost hunter slash researcher. Please get me that info as soon as possible because I would love to do a Chinese ghosts edition of BOA Audio. That would be amazing, and I know our listeners would flip out for that. So there you go. Two emails from two longtime friends of the program, folks whose fingerprints are all over BOA Audio Season 4 and in Claus's case, Season 5 as well. Hopefully, the same will be said about Damien when we get this info on the Ghost Hunter from Hong Kong. Not just fantastic listeners, not just awesome international listeners, but folks who helped us out, had a guest suggestion, and then did the legwork to really make it happen and open up whole new areas for BOA Audio to explore. Claus Yeager... Damian Green, thank you so much for writing in. Have a very Merry Christmas. Happy Holidays as well. And I wish you the best in 2010. Just to tease a little bit about what we're going to have for you next week, Keith responded to the email from last week regarding the street sign conspiracy rebuttal. So we're going to get Keith's take on that next week. So folks who've been following along on this listener feedback discussion regarding the street signs conspiracy you definitely want to tune into the end of the program next week for an update from keith in response to last week's email which took issue with the methodology of the highway department so tune in for that next week but of course we always want more emails from the great boa audio listeners we want to hear what you have to say about the program we want to hear your guest suggestions your comments your critiques and your questions so send them in to me. I'd love to uh, peruse your emails. How do you do that? You can go to Banal of America. You click the contact button. That'll put you in touch with me pretty simply. Or you can just write to boaaudio at hotmail.com. Another very simple way to get in touch with me. And finally, a little more interactive, a little more fun, the official BOA forum, the US of E.com, T-H-E-U-S-O-F. E.com. All kinds of fun discussion going on there related to esoterica as well as pop culture. And we'd love to have you there. It's a great community. We always welcome newcomers. And it seems like every new person that joins up at the forum has their own unique style and contributions to this little community that we have going on at the US of E. So the more the merrier. We definitely would love to see you at the forum. Once again, the URL for that is www.theusofe.com, T-H-E-U-S-O-F-E.com. So those are the three methods, contact button, email, or the forum. Any of those will put your correspondence into my hands for a future edition of BOA Audio listener feedback. Up next, of course, it is the thanks portion of the show. I want to extend a super huge thanks and Holiday well wishes to all of the amazing and outstanding BOA staff. Leslie, Chiron, Regan Lee, Joe V, Tina Senna, Rochelle Hawks, Richard Thomas, A.M. Murphy, Marla Pena, our webmaster Jeremy Boston, and contributing cartoonist Andy Carolin. They're not just a top-notch crew of writers for Banal of America. They're also my friends, and they carry the load for BOA on the six days of the week that we're not putting out BOA audio. They are really what makes Banal of America such a well-rounded think tank of esoterica. They are the best, and I hope they have an awesome holiday season. As I noted at the end of last week's episode, 
they're going to have a couple weeks off. They'll be back at BOA in the beginning of January. I want them to take some downtime here to relax, enjoy the holiday season, ruminate on some new columns, and really hit the ground running when 2010 kicks off. So that's what we're going to do at BOA. There's going to be plenty of other stuff at Banal of America. Don't even worry about that. And once 2010 starts, we're going to be just rolling through some awesome material from the BOA staff. I'm already looking forward to seeing what they come up with as we begin a whole new decade in esoterica. We say it every week, but it is the truth, my friends. If you're only listening to BOA audio and you're not reading the columns at Ben All of America, you're only getting half the story. BenAllofAmerica.com. Make it a part of your everyday search for esoteric news and opinion. And if this is the first time you've ever heard the program and you want to know how to find this mysterious Benal of America website, that's pretty simple. The URL is www.binnallofamerica.com. Check it out. Chances are by now you have done your holiday shopping. I still have to go do some shopping myself because it's been just crazy here for the last few weeks. I haven't had time to do anything. But... Hopefully, you've had a chance to do your holiday shopping, and I'm hoping that you got a little bit of extra cash left lying around that you can help us out with by making a donation. Whatever you got, it'll help us out in a huge way. How do you make a donation? That's shockingly simple. You just go to Banal of America, and you click the PayPal button. They'll walk you through the process, and as we say all the time here at the end of the show, all donations go towards BanalofAmerica.com and BOA Audio to help keep the website and the audio series up and running, freely available, and commercial-free for all of our great readers and listeners the world over. Next week on the program, I don't have much to say here because we haven't even taped next week's episode yet. It is scheduled for less than a week away. Next Monday, we're going to be taping the show, so I guess Normally, we never do this sort of thing, but I'm going to preview next week's edition of the program, even though we haven't taped it yet, even though it's not a sure thing, because I have such confidence in the two men I have scheduled on the show next week. We're going to close the book on 2009, as well as the decade of the aughts, with the most feared tag team in all of ufology, Nick Redfern and Greg Bishop, the UFO mystics. They're going to be back on the program. We're getting the band back together for a year in review, a decade in review. We're going to be talking about the big stories of 09, what little they were. And we're going to remember the friends and legends that we lost in 09, John Keel, Dick Hall, and Mac Tonys, as well as many others. And then we're going to move on to discuss the past 10 years in Esoterica. It's not going to be super in-depth. We're going to be talking about the trends and the changes that have happened in the world of paranormal studies in the last 10 years. It's been quite a decade, folks, for the world of esoterica, and I can't think of two guys better to discuss it than Nick Redfern and Greg Bishop. As I said, we haven't even taped the interview yet, so I can't go over too many of the finer details because they haven't happened yet. But I know we're going to have a lot of fun. I know these guys so well. We're going to have a lot of laughs. We're going to really dig into 2009 and the past decade. We're going to smash the fourth wall on Esoterica. So if you're one of those people that enjoys these state-of-the-field type episodes, you're going to really dig next week's episode, I'm sure. And if you enjoy the jam session style on BOA Audio, you're going to love next week's episode because we're going to be jamming big time 
with the UFO mystics, Nick Redfern and Greg Bishop. Barring any unforeseen circumstances or insanity, that will be coming at you next week. I'm not sure exactly when or how. That's the best way I can tease it, because last year we ended up going three hours. We split the episode up in half and then posted part one on the 30th and then part two on the 2nd of January. We may try and do that again this year if we go three hours. If it's only two hours, we'll probably just throw the episode out there in one shot for you next week. But if we go long enough to split it in half, I think we do that and put out two episodes next week for you. That's definitely a possibility. It's going to be a fun episode, I hope, and we'll be having it for you next week on BOA Audio. Check out the website for more information as it unfolds. And on that note, I don't have anything left to say. I'm kind of wearing out my voice here, but I'm in a rush because I want to get this episode out to folks as fast as possible before they start traveling for the holidays. Once again, my friends, I want to wish all of you a very Merry Christmas. Happy Hanukkah, Kwanzaa, Solstice, holiday season in general. Be safe out there. Don't drink too much and don't go driving around doing something crazy. We don't want to lose listeners to foolish behavior. Look out for yourselves and your loved ones. Enjoy the holiday. It's the time of year when you embrace the people that mean a lot to you. And you guys mean a lot to me. So thank you so much for your support of the program. I'll be back next week to ruminate and pontificate on the end of the year. But I just want to say once again, I can't thank the BOA Audio listeners enough. You guys are the fuel that drives the machine. You are really the reason why we keep putting out program after program after program. So thank you so much. Have an awesome holiday. You'll be hearing from me next week. Until then, this is Tim and all, thanking you for listening and signing off.